in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from deep in the heart of Texas, Mr. Dustin Melbardis. How you doing, sir? Yeah, I hear you loud and clear there, Russell. This is Call Sign Chapstick, keeping it cool down here in Torrid, Texas. Heard there's a truck heading out 281-306, veering towards Ranch Road 12, northbound for now, headed east around supper time. Come on back. Well, we're going to have to call in some Southern Pride help here. We're going to have to go make this a big orange episode here. So... You got a lot of people, yeah, Dustin is a UT graduate. I am a University of Tennessee graduate as well. And joining us is another University of Tennessee graduate, Mr. Ben Ashley, coming to you from Charleston, West Virginia. How are you doing, sir? Hey, great. Go Vols. Excited to be here. Go Vols. Get them, Vols. In, in keeping with this, you know, we're all sports fans, all UT guys. Who's your favorite UT athlete? We'll go ahead and take Peyton Manning out of it because it just makes it a more interesting question. If, who's your favorite UT athlete, excluding Peyton Manning? So we're second choice. Well, I got to say, I really like Arian Foster. He was a pretty decent running back when we were in school there. And then just in the last year or so, just in the last few months, he came out with the idea that the entire NFL is scripted like a movie. That's right. And on a podcast, he said, uh, you know, all the injuries are scripted, all the wins are scripted. And so keeping with the movie theme, I, I want to go with Arian Foster to answer this question. What, he was a great player, great <laughs> running back, fantasy football star, absolute Absolutely. star. Uh, but uh, what a character. I remember him rip off a long run against Kentucky at Kentucky, like off a screen pass. He was great. I, oh, I, yeah. I loved him. Fantastic. Dustin, same question to you. Favorite UT athlete not named Peyton Manning? My answer is Chris Lofton during our time answer. there, Russell. Yeah. I watched him hit a three from 26 feet out over Kevin Durant in Thompson Bowling Arena to take a one-point lead uh, over Texas with 18 seconds left. Uh, Durant came down and tied it. But we ended up scoring on every single overtime possession to win that game. And that was when uh, they had Kevin Durant and DJ Augustine, maybe a couple other guys. But uh, we had Duke Cruz and Wayne Chisholm and Dane Bradshaw. And just that team was so much fun. It was right at the beginning of the Bruce Pearl era. But Chris Lofton, for not having a NBA career really at all, his prime time was just was, was college basketball. And He made it uh, there? He, he hit another game, like a game winner against Winthrop in the like round of 32 or something, but Chris Lofton is probably my favorite. That was a great choice, and that is high up on mine. Bruce Pearl was such an exciting thing to happen for the University of Tennessee sports there, for sure. Right. Uh, Last time I'm, they were number one. Yeah. Last time and the basketball team was top in the country. So I'm going to go with Candace Parker, who, oh, yeah. you know, I when I got to Tennessee, the basketball program had not yet had Bruce Pearl there, so it was nice to, you know, Actually, the women's games were actually bigger than the men's games at that time. And That's she right. came in able to dunk. And uh, she's also just one of those really cool personalities. Uh, you know, she's very articulate, very, speaks very well. And, uh, you know, she does a great job on TV, too. So that's one of those UT graduates that I always enjoy supporting. She's wonderful on Inside the NBA now. She comes yeah. on 
and helps out whenever Kenny's not around or Shaq's not around. I think she's so fun. She's really good on that crew. So I, you know, whenever she for sure packs it up and retires, I hope she's made a permanent add on to that desk. So she adds more than Shaq does, who just mumbles. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I hope I do more than Shaq here in this podcast today. That's great. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and here in our Shaq role is Ben. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I, I do want to touch on something that you mentioned. I, I came in to University of Tennessee the same year you did, Russell, and the fall of 2003, the men's basketball team wasn't very good, but the women's team had just won like six national championships in the last few years. It was so hard to go to a women's game, but it was so easy and so fun to go to the men's games, not only because they dunked, but there were some amazing teams that came through there. Like we saw all the 2006, 2007 national championship Florida teams. We saw those Texas teams. Uh, just some amazing basketball you could go see. Obviously, Tennessee, you know, didn't win until Bruce Pearl came around. But it was great to be a Tennessee Vols basketball fan, if just a college basketball fan in general those first few years, because there's some great players and great teams to watch. Absolutely, and uh, Rick Barnes did a great job with the team this year too. So, yeah, yeah, you know, there's there's some unfair stuff talking about Coach Barnes, and um, I, I I do like the way he coaches. I will say I went to Dallas to see us lose to that uh, Loyola of Chicago oh, uh, team. That was heartbreaking. Uh, it was heartbreaking. And I, for a while there, I wasn't really on board with Barnes, but I think he's a good coach, and I like the way that this team plays for him. Um, losing Zakai Ziegler this year was rough, uh, but yeah. I'm still proud of our boys. Yeah. That win over Duke in the tournament was a lot of fun. Oh, oh God, we beat up that kid. <laughs> Filipowski. Yeah. Yeah, Euros Plastic beat him up. Are we going to do a basketball podcast? <laughs> I don't know. We could do that. Yeah, we could do that. <laughs> I, well, I guess we did watch a movie. Maybe we should talk about that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, Patreon content. Ben, what is the last movie you saw? Well, uh, I've got a four-year-old daughter, so uh, I think you can uh, sort of relate to this. Uh, I'm big into Disney princess movies, and the one we watch, when we watch them, we watch them all the time. Uh, but Moana has been my favorite lately. Uh, the Rock is Maui is awesome, and uh, Lin Manuel Miranda did the the music, and so that movie's really really great. It's making me want to go to Hawaii. So hmm. <laughs> that's when I'm not watching dedicated movies for this podcast. I'm I'm watching Disney movies, princess movies in general. Nothing wrong with that. And Dustin, how about you? I went and saw John Wick Four. I, it's been appointment viewing whenever one of these John Wick movies comes out. Uh, probably the first time I went to the theater this year actually was John Wick Four. Uh, I will say I'm not enjoying them at the same clip that I was when the first two came out. Number three and number four uh, are providing you what you want out of those movies, but the depth isn't there. And I think your brain gets a little tired seeing just how much action they pack into it. Uh, plot is, I mean, who cares? That, that, and they know that. They, they don't really uh, need to make anything make sense. We just kind of want to see Keanu play this guy. Uh, it was enjoyable, but it's not one I recommend. Uh, for me, my last one, let's see. I watched Nebraska from 2013. It is a Will Forte movie and Bruce Dern movie. It is, despite having Will Forte, it's not a humorous movie. It's kind of a heartwarming movie. There is humor in it of a older dad character, grandfather era character who's uh, not able to drive and keeps just walking out of the house. <laughs> and he thinks he's won a sweepstakes contest. Uh, so he takes his uh, prize money or it's really a scam, unfortunately. And so his son agrees to finally take him to Nebraska to claim his winnings, even though it's not just to basically keep him to shut him up and to take him there. So it's a, it's a road trip journey. 
between a son and his dad. And, uh, you know, the son doesn't really know all that much about his dad because he's been so closed off. So it's black and white. And um, hmm. but he got nominated for Best Picture that year. It's just been one of those movies I always wanted to see because Will Forte is in it. I like my Saturday Night Live guys a whole lot. So that's right. Um, that's cool. I would recommend it. It's a it's an underrated movie. So. Um, so well, hey, and it's 10 years old, which means I'll watch it. It is. Yep. Yep. And I, I'm not going to lie. I watched it uh, in preparation for I tried to see all the best pictures nominees and I just didn't see that one. So as we prepare for our end of year top 10 of 2013, I figured this was one I just need to sprinkle in there along the way. Now, Ben, what movie are we going to cover today? Oh, one of my favorites, Smokey and the Bandit. I believe it was Billy Bob Thornton who said, who's from the South, who said, if you're from the South, this is actually a documentary. <laughs> That's good. This movie comes out in 1977. It is number two to only Star Wars that year, so it's a smash hit in the box office. It comes in ahead of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, so it is a massive success. This was only made for $4.3 million. That's not a big budget, and it grosses $126.7 million domestically alone, and it's, it's amazing. This got released initially only in the South, and it did so well. Took it up to New York. And it did well there, and they took it out to San Francisco, and all of a sudden, everybody realized this movie was for everybody. It wasn't just for the South. So uh, it, it is not rated that highly on IMDb at 6.9, but it is well-liked amongst fans. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes give it a 78%, and the audience score of gives it an 84%. So it is an Academy Award nominee, which you might not guess. It is nominated for Best Film Editing. So... And it is nominated for some of the AFI distinctions for best laughs, thrills, and heroes and villains. Didn't make any of those lists, but it's it's in the conversation, at least for, for this. So, Ben, had you seen Smokey and the Bandit before? <laughs> well, that's a resounding yes. Um, when I was in school, there, I always did my homework well when there was something going on in the back, background. And uh, this is one that I, I wore out. I actually did wear out Smokey and the Bandit 2 DVD. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all scratched up from from playing, but this is one that I've loved for a long, long time. It's a it's a cult movie. It, there's a lot of fun. The stunts are fun. The love is fun. Uh, it's just a, a great all around movie, in my opinion. So I would I understand why it's not considered for all those awards for filmmaking and plot and things like that. The plot's very, very simple. I mean, the plot is is as simple as it gets, but uh, it sure was a fun movie, and it has been for a long time, and I think it still will be. I, I don't know. I think uh, Superbad starts off by just needing beer and, you know, and it ends up being a great movie. So this movie just need you need beer and you have a great movie. So that's, that's, true. that's really hmm. all you need for a great movie. Just hmm. the need to get beer and to get beer. Dustin, what about you? Had you seen Smokey and the Bandit before? Yeah, I saw it on TV as a kid. And uh, I will say that it didn't stand out to me at all. It was just, oh, this is an older movie and it's on. So I guess I'll pay attention for a little bit or sit around. Uh, it, it none of the nuance that I can view movies with now came to pass. I was just like, oh, you know, cars, kind of neat. Like it, you could have had this on, or you could have had could have had them Duke Boys on, and I wouldn't have really known the difference. I was just like, oh, this is just kind of an older car movie. But I was really happy to come back to it and sit down and take the time with it this time. Okay, so it's so a bit of a change then in returning to it. It was later. forgettable. Like it wasn't really a part of my childhood. I just knew I had seen it. Got it. Yeah. Well, I am a first time watcher of this one. I had not seen it. And to be honest with you, I'm not that versed in Burt Reynolds' movies. I had seen The Longest Yard and I had seen 
uh, deliverance with him and as well as he pops into some movies later in his career where it's just like, hey, I'm Burt Reynolds, 10 right. gallon hat, you know, like, you know, Norm MacDonald. I know Norm MacDonald is Burt Reynolds better than I know <laughs> actual Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds so. I think people people know Will Ferrell's Harry Carey way more than they know Harry Carey. So, I, I had a great time with this movie and I'm starting to finally get the appeal to Burt Reynolds. And I would like to see more Burt Reynolds, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's not just a mustache enthusiasts across America who champion Burt Reynolds. This movie, this movie shows that he's one of those dudes that the guys kind of want to be friends with, and the girls like. You know, at the time he was he was a hot commodity, so um, ladies want to be with him, guys want to be around him. So that's that's uh, I think that's this movie is sold on him, and it works really well. It's so much fun. Uh, too often, you know, we you know sometimes diminish movies just for being fun. This movie is a whole lot of fun. And that's a really valuable thing for a movie to be. It's just action-packed fun. A whole lot of fun and a whole lot of charm that, yeah. that I didn't get as a kid, but I definitely get now. And uh, you, you, could almost, you could almost listen to this movie and it would be, I mean, it wouldn't be as good, but you would feel the same feelings about sort of uh, putting, putting the relationships together. And, you know, once you know what's going on, Especially considering the heavy reliance on the CB radios, I, I actually I'm telling on myself a little bit. I watched it last week, but I listened to it while I was taking a long drive two days ago. Uh, just kind of listened to the banter again. I'm gonna be really excited to get this one with you because this is a fun one. We probably spoiled the plot for you already, but there are spoilers that lie ahead. So for those who haven't seen this movie, you might want to check it out. And we will be back after these messages where we will spoil the movie. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Dustin, for those who haven't seen Smoking the Bandit since 1977, do you want to give people a refresher? There's only so much celebrating you can do in Georgia with that white lightning and Pabst Blue Ribbon. We got to get some of that golden Colorado Coors beer, and we got to get it fast. From the furthest place east we can, Texarkana. This is the goal of Big and Little Enos Burdett, and they task the one and only Bandit Darville to go and do it for $80,000. Bandit enlists the help of Snowman, his friend Cletus, to go and make the run. Easy enough. They don't even got to pay for the beer. But on the way back, they are ambushed by a bride in the middle of the road, Carrie. And Bandit can't help but leave her there. We learn that she has just dodged a wedding to Sheriff Buford T. Justice's son, Jr., and he's hot on the trail to get her back. Is it ever more appropriate to simply say, hijinks ensue, as Snowman, Bandit, and Frog, real name Carrie, race through the deep south on their way back to meet the deadline, dodging the highway patrol and the ever-dogged Buford along the way. 
As they get closer to their destination, Bandit's reputation and popularity over the CB airwaves gather some allies to keep the county Mounties off their tail until they make the delivery, hop in a new Cadillac, and accept a new deal to race up to Boston to get some clam chowder. All right. So, Ben, why don't you start us off here? What drew you to this movie that makes you, you know, you have to select the movie. So what's, what's drawing you to this one? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, obviously the, the action with Burt Reynolds, the, the beautiful Trans Am that he drives throughout the movie, the, the really cool truck that he has. But, the, but the, at the time I started watching this was also the time that I myself was on quite a few beer runs. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you didn't always have to travel to Texas to get Coors Light. In fact, I, I believe it was 1985 that that law or, or you know, whatever that, that law needed changed allowed that West Coast beer or West Western America beer to make it this way. But, you know, when we were in college, we were always on beer runs. And so how about a movie that's full of action that's, uh, you know, where a guy's driving a Trans Am to, to lead a truck to, to outrun the law to get that for, uh, you know, to, to put a few dollars in his pocket. I, I just thought that the whole action, the whole adventure, you know, the crashes, the, the jumping the bridge, all those things just sort of drew me in and the, and the fact that it's just over a simple beer run such a fantastic movie yeah simple beer run you you nailed it before the break the plot of this movie is simple incredibly so uh and that doesn't take away from your enjoyment of this it makes it easy for you to just kind of sit back in your couch and take it in but yeah the premise of we need you to go and get this beer i suppose we do start with a, a, a very short scene of somebody else who's trying to do it but got caught i don't think we get much explanation as to why it must be done in the way that it's being done and that's okay too because it, it, all, all it gets us is it gets snowman and bandit on the road faster yeah i think it had to do with the development of the refrigerated truck um well, there we course. go Course couldn't guarantee the freshness of their beer for that long in a you know a hot truck that's been trucked all over the South, and so yeah, if you think about uh, how refreshing it is to drink that Colorado <laughs> Kool Aid, yeah, you know, now they they make such a big deal even today about the the mountains being blue on the can, how, how fresh <laughs> it is. Right. Just the idea of a, of a big cross country beer run with your buddies to to make a few bucks is just it's just so fun. Plus, there's just a whole nostalgia part too. I mean, the the scenery of the seventies, what a wild time! You couldn't do that today. I mean, you absolutely couldn't do any of this stuff today. <laughs> but uh, it's just absolutely hilarious and fun. It sounds like it struck people by a little bit surprised too. It was some. I think Billy Ray Cyrus said it's required viewing for a uh, as a southerner, but. It, I found it interesting that this was not expected to have the national appeal that it went on to have. And I did find myself wondering, I said, if you made this today, is this going to have, is this going to work in New York and in Boston and all over the country and be the number two movie? And in general, comedies don't tend to be as big on the box office anymore. This one does have the action to kind of propel that. But it's really interesting to see how this exported this. It, it's very, very Southern. All the characters are very, very Southern. And it's stepping into that world a little bit. And I think that's one of those really cool things. Uh, Burt Reynolds said it's a rainy day, Saturday afternoon movie. It's a little like Chinese food. After about an hour, you see this, you want to go see another. I don't know. He's pumping up his own movie. But gosh, that description for Burt Reynolds is just that bravado he just walks around with. He brings it in this movie. And it's, this movie is just so carried on the back of Burt Reynolds, I think. His personality. Dustin, had you, had you seen much Burt Reynolds before? No, although I will remind you that if I had to recast anyone in Star Wars A New Hope, I was saying that Burt Reynolds should be in the cockpit of one of those X-Wings, because I think you'd know you'd succeed 
if you had the bandit <laughs> coming in on that run. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't say that I have uh, much of a history aside from, I think you mentioned the longest yard um, and deliverance. Th those are the two that stand out to me. Um, that sort of bow fishing scene is something that, you know, like that, that character makes sense. Um, I'm not going to push back too hard, but I would say Burt Reynolds helps carry this movie, but it's not like he's doing a lot of heavy lifting. He's got a, a wonderful supporting cast. It's not, I don't think this is the Burt Reynolds show. I think he has the gravitas as an actor and they write the supporting characters as to being sort of in awe of this legend. It's pretty nice to have a big hotshot actor playing a legend instead of playing a nobody. Uh, he's well-known, he's well-liked, and he's got the charisma to earn it. We're very lucky to have Buford T. Justice as his antagonist, to have a friend character like Jerry Reed's uh, Snowman, and then to have Sally Field in the, in the passenger seat. Uh, so like, I, I don't think he has to champion this movie that hard. It was all the, the, the table was set for him to very easily, casually uh, stand out. Well, OK, so it sounds like the Dustin is saying that this is more of an ensemble effort here. Is it the Burt Reynolds show for you? Well, I agree. But also standing on its own is the music from this movie. You know, Jerry Reed is a country music hall of famer. And and this song, Eastbound Down, was was written very quickly. But it's one of, I would guess, the the top 10 songs of the 1970s. I mean, it's, it stands strong today. It's, it's well-written. The, the song follows the, the, you know, the simple plot to a T, but it's so catchy, such a great tune. And Jerry Reed at that time in the country music scene was as hot as it gets. He was, he even had a song called when you're hot, you're hot around that same <laughs> time. So, you know, Jerry Reed to me is, and I believe he was originally going to be cast as the bandit until Burt Reynolds finally said, yes, so uh, I guess, uh, you know, they moved him over to being the snowman. Yeah, in which case you just tip your hat and say, okay, yes, right yes. this way, Mr. Reynolds. That's right. That's right. But, uh, you know, Jerry Reed is, is just absolutely fantastic. And I do agree with, I, I believe this isn't a great ensemble movie. And then if you look at Sally Field, she was a, a big star at that time. She was known for smaller roles and as sort of a kid in a bunch of movies. But, and after this movie, she becomes a sex symbol, a, a, you know, a symbol of beauty, a symbol that. Uh, you know, if Burt Reynolds likes her, she's got to be great good looking. So, and then of course, um, Buford T. Justice, uh, that's Jackie Gleason is a, is a, you know, multi-decade TV star, a great comedian and just brings so much as, as the actor on the, on the antagonist side. And I believe this is a, a wonderful ensemble movie. Well, maybe it is more spread out now that you guys are mentioning it. I, I will admit th the biggest laughs of the movie I got from Buford T. Justice and his reaction to what's going on. I do find, to your point, Dustin, having this be a living legend is pretty funny because we, you know, you don't think of smugglers as being somebody that you champion or know around town. And it became humorous. It kind of grew throughout the movie. Throughout the movie, you, like, you know, yeah, we knew we were calling the bandit in at the beginning. He has a reputation for being able to do this. But then by the end of the movie, you have teenage girls holding up a sign at like the drive through <laughs> or like he's calling yeah. in people on the CB radio being like, I could use you to slow down the cops here. And everybody in town, no matter where he goes, like, that's the bandit. That's so yeah. cool. And you're right. There does begin to be, build up this joke of like, OK, this is beyond being 
I know a lot of people or I'm an extrovert and I'm a man about town. Uh-huh. <laughs> like this notion of everybody just thinks he's awesome. It's uh, it's even more so than the Fonz. Like I always wondered, like, why does everybody wow. think the Fonz is so cool if somebody just pops a leather jacket on and walks around town? And can they be that cool? And uh, everybody, it just becomes a self-growing thing of like the Fonz is cool. Didn't you hear? No, I didn't. Oh, yeah, you're right. He is cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I've been told he's cool. So I think the bandit's kind of like that. And I think both in the case of the Fonz and Burt Reynolds here and the bandit, I think those are very funny. Uh, uh, to that point, I also want to say, you know, if you think about what became a viral sensation at that time, you know, today it would be something, you know, going viral on social media. You know, look, look at all these people. There's, you know, there's a million tweets right now about this particular person. But back at that time in the South, it was created by the CB radio. You know, if something was going on, you'd radio on up ahead and everybody on up ahead would hear that. And so I'm sure that's how they assume that spread in the, you know, the, the plot of the movie. But uh, there wasn't, you know, the cell phone back then. There wasn't Facebook right. and any of that, of course. So then if it wasn't on live TV, you know, the word was spread like wildfire through the CB radio. And that's such a cool lost. I, I guess it's lost. I don't know many people other than truckers today that still use the CB radio. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of something that Russell was saying about championing the outlaw. Maybe there might not be any better place than the Deep South to do that, to, to have an entire part of the country that really holds in high relevance, like their rebel spirit. Uh, you have the idea of moonshiners and people that are trying to do their business uh, outside of the reach of the law. And then smugglers or bootleggers. Boy, this movie does a really good job of teaching you if you did not know what this was, this is why it's illegal. I think three times in the first 18 minutes. Something like, uh oh, well, east of Texas, now that's bootlegging. <laughs> it's sort of like, oh, okay, thank you. And, and you know, when they distribute the movie wide to the rest of the country, oh, okay, now we know what the stakes are here. You know, I think of other like movies in the South, I couldn't help but think of. Oh, brother, where art thou? Like, oh, these guys just run off the farm. And there's kind of, the, there's two, the, the ones that want to assist in apprehending, those are few and far between. Most of them are just like, oh, I just need a hot meal, like help them out, bust these chains off. Uh, so I can see that this setting, this environment is almost perfect for this kind of movie uh, or this kind of character who, like I say, it doesn't have to try hard to be cool. He just kind of already is. And uh, the, the whole look, his mannerisms, uh, and his savvy, he's the Southern Han Solo. You know what? Before this movie, I think I would have said, uh, you wash your mouth out with soap. But I'm start, like I said, I'm starting to get the appeal of uh-huh. Burt Reynolds. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to, you, you said that in the Star Wars episode. And I was sitting there going like, Burt Reynolds in this movie? <laughs> and I, I like and see his Norm McDonald with a giant foam hat on the, like, in an X-Wing cockpit going they like. knew it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I I'm starting to I'm starting to see it now. It's more believable. So the motivation for Bandit to pick up 400 cases of Coors beer at at its semi valued at eighty thousand dollars. That's two hundred dollars a case. Sixteen dollars per bottle is what this would break down to. So it doesn't wow. exactly make sense that they would do this, but who cares? We're having fun. But to that notion, I think you guys pointed out that it was bootlegging Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, and President Ford both had this flown in on a plane for them at the White House. So this does actually have some draw. It, it's funny. It's hard to connect that at this point, this, the seriousness of it. But uh, I, I'll admit, I think uh, Hitchcock calls them a MacGuffin. It doesn't matter what it is. We don't care what it does. It's just everybody wants it. And not everybody's trying to get the beer in this case, but it's a strong enough 
indicator for all the fun action that's going to ensue. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't, not everybody wants the beer per se. It's not like the treasure that everybody's pursuing. Obviously, tracking down and catching the bandit is kind of the big name of the game. But in a similar way, it's not a MacGuffin in its inks particularly, but it kind of works in the same way. And it's, it's amazing how something so simple can still bring such joy. It's also like not for everybody, right? It's not like he's dropping off a couple cases here or there. Like, hey, thanks for your help. Have a beer. <laughs> this is for just two guys, big and little Enos. Uh, I mean, yeah, they're throwing a big celebration at the rodeo. But the the idea that like I'm taking this job for just some wealthy clients, um, that that might go against some other outlaw or renegade type characters like turned pirates or Robin Hood. It might that might go against like the Robin Hood archetype of like give to everyone. Like he's just there for a job. I know me and Brian have talked about this before, specifically on the Ronin episode. Is sometimes the job is just the job, and it's the it's the action of fulfilling it that is what's intriguing, not necessarily the cargo itself. Now I will say the the sheer amount of what they had to get does allow this movie to do something that I would have never thought mattered uh you know as like as an adult which is this movie isn't as good without the necessity for the big rig for the truck if it's just the cars then we're looking at 1970s fast and furious you're gone in 60 seconds having the trans am and uh snowman in the truck (laughs) now that that is where we get some real like you know i had friends that went to ut with us who after graduating went on to be truckers like this is kind of a southern thing uh so i thought that was wonderful too and um, that that it added to how fun this movie should be well i think um paralleling with some of the you know the ideas behind having that glorified can of coors light you know that that the brand loyalty is still a big thing today even you know even with beer a few years ago i remember when we were at tennessee probably our uh sophomore year or something like that around 2005 yingling hadn't made its way south yet you I know exactly what you mean here, Ben. Yeah, you couldn't buy a Yingling beer that far south. I remember in Morgantown, you could, but not not down in in the Volunteer State. We had uh, to get up to Abingdon, Virginia to get some of that Yingling. Yeah, yeah. So I guess there are some distributorship rules and regulations that are still in play, crossing state lines and whose territory is who or whatever. But um, So that's still true today. And then also, kind of anecdotally, um, I have... One of the one of the things I do in my spare time is I have a first grader that I mentor, and he and all of his friends go absolutely bananas over this little drink called Prime. Uh, it's a it's a sports drink that Logan and Jake Paul or whatever. I, I don't oh, know. I've what seen a, it. Yeah, I know what you mean now. Those I brought a bottle in there today, and those kids went absolutely nuts. I mean, you'd have thought how I had a Coors can of beer in the Deep South in the seventies. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> Every little kid was like, "Can I have some? Can I have a bottle of that?" But it's pretty cool. But yeah, there's, you know, there's something to that, to that sense of, I have something that, you know, you can't get easily. I, and I think the same is true today. If you're, you know, searching for bourbon, you know, there's, there's so many good cheap bourbons you just simply can't get because you know, the demand is too high. And so I'm, a, I'm a bourbon aficionado myself, but there's some things like Weller and Eagle Rare and things like that. You just can't find in the store, but, but they're only like 20, $30 a bottle if you do find it. So it's not not simply because of price. It's just availability. Yeah. One of the things that makes this movie very enjoyable, Sheriff Buford, T-Justice here. Ben, mm, yes. what, what, makes him, what makes him fun? 
oh, he's just he's just so abrasive, so repulsive, not afraid to be offensive. I mean, he you know he he says some things that you absolutely cannot say in this twenty first century, and right. uh, you know you get away with it because it's an older movie, I guess. But uh, uh, you just want to you just want that guy to lose. And uh, I, think, I think they did that then though too, wanting you to make him dislikable. He's he's kind of outwardly bigoted. He's yeah. kind of he's kind of chauvinistic. He's kind of he thinks so highly of himself with an arrogance that he's above everybody and in a in a position of authority. No matter what era you're in, that's always repugnant. So I mean, I think he's driving into that so 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 hard that it becomes a parody and it's very funny. I think you could get away with it today, don't you? I mean, like. What he's doing is wrong and he doesn't he doesn't pan out for him. It's almost like, uh, you know, you're painting the picture of somebody who's bigoted and and fails and he is an idiot because of this. Yeah. Part of being an idiot. Well, sure. I I meant more of what he said doesn't doesn't translate into, you know, some of the some of the offensive things. uh, I'm not going to repeat here on this podcast. Yeah, there's several things that should not be said. (laughs) That's fair. You know, but the idea of of the heel, you know. My my buddy years ago told me when I was big into watching WWE that the the best wrestlers, the face wrestlers, are are so good because the the heel is so bad. You know, you want that strong divide between the good and the bad. So the stronger of a role that you have on the on the heel side of this movie, the antagonist, the the sheriff, it, the you know, the more it props up the good side. So I think that uh, is a nice balance because everyone loves the bandit. The chemistry that Sally Field has with Burt Reynolds is also very enjoyable. I don't know if you feel like, I don't know if you can feel it or not, but there's an actual real life romance that starts to kindle between these two. I don't know if that shows through on the screen for you. You know, my first, my first show ever on this was, uh, we looked at a Matt Damon, Emily Blunt romance in the Adjustment Bureau. And one of the things I had to say about that was that it seemed real. And this one does too. Not quite the same. Obviously those movies are, I think, 34 years apart. But the idea is uh, when you can see it, uh, all of a sudden, the acting becomes way easier. And uh, every little scene that you have them together, whether it's just playful banter, kept to short quips, uh, I believe we get a little bit of Frog having kind of a motor mouth and she wants to just kind of keep talking. I believe one of the things she says, like, do you find this fun? What, driving or talking to you? I find them both challenging. This is, in a way, framing this character as a little fast talking. She's mostly comedic. There's not too much depth to her. And gives a perfect reason for Buford to be following, Buford and Junior to be following. This movie probably doesn't make as much sense or has the tight connection that it does if it weren't for this bride in the middle of the road who comes along for the journey, who ends up loving this lifestyle quickly, even tells us, the audience, she lets us know, I really just wanted an excuse to stay in the car. I didn't want to leave. This is too much fun. And we as the audience are saying, thank you. Yes, we want to see you there too. So uh, absolutely lovely chemistry. And I think she nails her comedic spots. Um, She's sweet when she needs to be. And I think if you have a director who's focusing on fast car chases and sort of the the manly main actors, that to have the sweetness in her character come out in her comedic wit, uh, that's kind of a tour de force. I maybe would not have expected that kind of attention being paid. I thought it worked well. You know, you kind of felt sorry for her because she said she was a traveling dancer and she was going from show to show, road show. I think she was at some home warehouse show when mm. she met the the good looking, although uh, you know, not a whole lot upstairs, 
sheriff's son, uh, when it, when she got time to, or when it got time to walk down the aisle, uh, you know, she ran. And so, uh, she was looking for something different, looking for something exciting and she ends up being charming. And I thought it was very, very cool that even though they're on this, you know, cross country race, they, they still found time for a nice romantic walk in the park. And, uh, right. that was, that was super sweet. You saw their love there and, she, and snowman's dog ran off too. She's important though, because without her, she's new to this world. Like you've mentioned, Dustin, she's our, she's our experience reflected into this movie. We're yeah. not familiar with this world. I don't think most of us have just hopped in the car with a bootlegger and driving at high speeds, evading the cops and cross multiple state lines. So for those of us who haven't experienced in that, we're, we're on the record along. on the record, Russell, that's correct on the record. No, I don't have any experience with that. <laughs> so it's funny. It's through her eyes that, you know, his charm and his confidence draw us in too. So it's not just, it's not just doing it for her. It's, it's us getting like, oh, we find out a little bit more as this movie goes on who this bandit guy is and <laughs> what a big, hilariously random fan following he has. So, and she's, you know, everybody wants him and somehow that makes her want him too. So like I said, it, it is the Fonz. Uh, ism like it was like at some point he's like haven't you heard I'm a big deal no well look around I'm a big deal oh <laughs> ooh <laughs> it's like I didn't know you were a big deal I like that <laughs> so because he even says he's like he's like I just go from town to town doing what I do best what's that showing off showing well you're off. good at that <laughs> yeah and he uh, he's got a lot of moments to show off his uh, natural charisma and charm but he's not overdoing it either. He doesn't have his arm around every lady. Yes, over the CB radio, we get the idea that he has had past relationships, whether professional or otherwise, with some of these other ladies. But that's not an integral part of his character. He's just attractive to everyone based on his prowess, his skill, his cunning, all that stuff. Um, he, he doesn't need to be like outwardly you know, in the hot tub with a cadre of ladies. Like he's just, he's just already that cool. I have to admit, I'm a big James Bond fan as probably anybody who listens to this podcast knows. Jackie Gleason gives me the additional helping of Sheriff J.W. Pepper that I've always wanted from the man with the golden gun. I just, you know, he's this, he's, he's, they're very much cut from the same cloth. I can't help but think Jackie Gleason would have seen this and it entered his head a little bit. Jackie Gleason's reactions are just very funny and it's interesting. I've seen I've seen the honeymooners from what I've seen of them. I didn't see this coming. So it it's it's a perfect fit, but gosh, he's he's good. He's not even nice to his own son. No, like he's it's not. like he's not even a little bit nice. You know, it's like I, I, that, yeah. He barely he tolerates him. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and he's driving all across you know, 700 miles east uh, because the because Gary had the gall to walk out of a wedding that he spent $40 decorating the whole town for. <laughs> no one's going to make a fool of my son. But I, I thought the craziest, the craziest thing he said throughout the entire movie was, I guess when they wrecked in the, in the creek there at the end, he said something like, son, remind me when we get home, I'm going to punch your mother right <laughs> your in the mouth. Mother right in the mouth. <laughs> There's no way you're from my loins. There's <laughs> no way you're from my loins. <laughs> yeah, you know, th that character probably could have stood to be developed a little bit more, Junior, but it's okay that it wasn't. We're, it's really <laughs> I don't know how much development he has. Well, in the second yeah. one, he wasn't really developed either. I mean, just a yeah, little bit, but yeah. 
he's kind of just along for the ride, which which is funny. Uh, you know, think of Buford telling him, like, go put the evidence in the car. And he like, has it sitting there in the front seat. Eh, put it in the back of the car. <laughs> yeah, the, the, it really creates. It's nice that he has someone in the car with him to, you know, bounce his comedic stylings off of, um, including like over the radio with the other sheriffs in the area or with uh, the person at the choke and puke, you know, the, the, the truck stop or the bus stop, whatever you want to call it his interactions are uh, i'm not going to say they steal the show because there's a lot of show to go around but uh, he he is an enjoyable character and i think that the the buford t justice character either creates or solidifies that archetype of the style of we'll say over white over white well that's part of it overweight um like dangerous sheriff who like has all these resources at his control. And we think of boss hog from Dukes of hazard. You think, Hey, you brought up the WWE. They made characters around like this kind of guy. So like it's it like to be an archetype creating role. I mean, think of it like the terminator or, you know, uh, Danny ocean. Like there are certain archetypes that exist because of movies. And I didn't come into this podcast thinking like, Oh, that's something I wanted to harp on, but really sheriff Buford T justice, like, you know exactly the type of character you're talking about. And it's all thanks to a movie that came out uh, 45 years ago. He is, I think one of the reasons that he would work today again is you could see him, you know, over the CB radio talking to, you know, we see as an audience that it's a very intelligent, competent, much better at his job probably than Sheriff Buford T. Justice is. Uh, it's a black man on the other end of the phone. And when he meets him in person, he exhibits you know, this, you know, what is this world coming to kind of thing? And, you know, and right. he, he even stutters over himself. He's like, I thought you'd be uh, shorter. <laughs> and like, right. you know, like, um, you know, it's just, he, he treads the line of, I, I think at the time these things weren't received that well either, which in credit to this movie, that was a, that, you know, they, that was a black character who was, put in a position of respect and intelligence he, you know, he, he his vocabulary through him for it is not germane to the situation the german the germans don't got nothing to do with this right well you know just 10 years earlier was the uh, I, I believe we covered it last year the, the professionals we have a situation where we're dealing with uh, mexican main characters and one or two i think just one uh, black member of the crew and th- the character who was talking to Lee Majors says something offhand, a, a small racist comment. And even just a small comment is enough for audiences at that time to say, oh, no, we're not down with that. Because exactly. these outlaws are not down with that. They're more about brotherhood. They're more about can you do the job. And so this is 10 years later. Now, and we're talking about the Deep South. We all know those people. I certainly do. Who some of the terms he uses or, uh, you know, there is a little bit of a sight gag where we're talking about like, oh, I thought you'd be, over the radio. I thought you'd be taller or whatever that line is. And he's standing over him. He actually starts that that conversation off with calling him boy. Like there's yes. some things that we know, like it's it's not just a little bit. It's a lot of the stuff we don't like. And it does a great job of reminding us that even though he's funny and we enjoy the time that we see him on screen, which I think this movie does a great job of is we enjoy the time that everyone's on screen. There are times in uh, crime movies or thrill movies where when someone's on screen, you get uneasy or uncomfortable. We understand that he's bad, but we like when he's on screen. That's tough to do. 
to your point, Jackie Gleason was a big part of what made this work. This movie is underwritten, perhaps no surprise here. Hal Needham is not necessarily a screenplay writer nor a director. He's he's a first time in both of these positions. So this is something that Burt Reynolds, as well as Sally Field, and their back and forth pays dividend to through improvising, but also through Jackie Gleason doing it. There was nobody written to be in the car with him, which I can't even imagine wow. because you don't get to not like him as nearly as much i mean there's just so many things he does to his own son you know like he's like, <laughs> he's like hold my hat so the top of the car gets ripped off and he goes hold my hat and so his son puts his hand on his head and his, his own hat blows off seconds later and he goes daddy my hat blew off <laughs> <laughs> he goes i hope your head was in it <laughs> so i mean he's completely selfish as well and obsessed and it, it's very funny to watch him do this and jackie gleason is a comedic genius if you've seen his pre- previous work and as you pointed out then his his multi-generational talent he brought so much to the writing of this so i mean you could see somebody making comments about you know whether it be minorities stereotypes uh you know ladies or anything like that and coming off as being you know i mean it worked in anchorman Watching, you know, like, watching, watching Will Ferrell go like a woman newscaster, <laughs> and so you start to turn on them because of that. Jerry Reed, not somebody you think of as an actor, Ben. He actually pulls his weight pretty well here, doesn't he? Oh yeah, I feel like he was a natural fit. Um, you know, he's he's a great he's a great musician, great country singer. I understand he could play about any instrument you ever put in front of him, uh, and he's got just a a great wit, a great sense of wit to him. Yeah. I I just love the, uh, not just Jerry, but also the, the, the CB radio language that he sort of brings us into, you know, there's always a second meaning behind everything. We talked about, uh, stopping at the choking puke and putting some groceries down my neck. I started Mm -hmm. saying that all the time to my wife afterwards. (laughs) And when we were, you know, on a road trip, I need to stop and get some food and stuff. And she's like, what in the world? But you know, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, how they you don't know. Yeah. That's how they, you know, said things. But uh, yeah, there's just so many, so many things that Jerry brings to the table. He's a, he's a country music hall of famer. He had, he's a tremendous musician, tremendous songwriter, and just a, a real great voice of the South at that time. Who uh, is just hard not to like. Well, let's talk about the guy who created this thing a little bit. Hal Needham. He's a stunt man. He trains under John Wayne, which, you know, that'll make it cool right there. And, you know, he's stunt doubled for Chuck Robinson, quickly became one of the top stuntmen in the 1960s. He actually became the highest paid stuntman in Hollywood. And so this is him branching out. Uh, you know, he doubled for Clint Walker and more importantly, Burt Reynolds. So Hal Needham was so close to Burt that when he got divorced, speaking of a divorce, uh, he, he, Burt Reynolds said, I got a big house. Why don't you live with me? Well, Hal got a pretty good safety net there. Not only did he get to the stay with Burt Reynolds, he did it so for 12 years. And it's funny, there's two, there's two conflicting interviews here where Burt Reynolds is like, oh, he's a great guy. I mean, you know, he lived with me for eight years. And then and there's another interview that cuts in and Hal, Hal's laughing. He goes, he has the worst memory ever. I stayed with him for 12 years. <laughs> so be careful if you invite Hal Needham to stay with you. It could, it could go a little bit longer than you might be thinking. But uh, it's... It, as I was reading the story, it reminded me of this, and it is not a shock that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Tarantino movie, Brad Pitt's character is is based on 
Al Needham and his relationship to Burt Reynolds, the actor. That's cool. And and their kinship of that. And honestly, as they were telling me the story, I was just like, I couldn't not picture the dynamic that those two had. And sure enough, Quentin took took influence from that in his movie. And it's interesting, as you mentioned, not only was this written for Jerry Reed, and he so smoothly, debatably, fits like a glove into the other role so quickly and easily. He showed the script to Burt Reynolds, his friend, and he said, yeah, I'll be in this movie. And he's like, <laughs> so, and, uh, you know, they were off to the races. They, they had a real movie with Burt's backing. So they asked who they wanted to be the love interest. He said he wanted Sally Field and the studio fought him. They said, Sally Field's not sexy. No. And took Burt's credit. He said, you know what is sexy? Talent. She's good. You should put her in there. And I think I think that's the movie you want to do. And you know, if you want Burt Reynolds, that's that's who you get. And so, uh, when it came to who to direct this movie, Hal Needham wrote this thing, but Burt said, "I think you could direct it." So, I mean, Burt's confidence in people to do things that they're not normally doing, whether uh, throughout this movie, just made so many things that we've talked about throughout the course of this podcast come to fruition in the ma- making of it. And you know, who better to direct? A movie like this than somebody who does the stunts themselves and they know what it takes to make them work and so i don't know uh, we've talked a lot about the laughs we've talked a lot about the characters then this is an exciting movie too isn't it oh yeah absolutely there's a lot of action there's a lot of you know the stunts are, are what makes it what makes it exciting um but but in reality you're kind of faced against the clock here you know are they going to make it back to atlanta in 28 hours are they going to be able to outrun the sheriff you know, will they be able to celebrate with Coors Light when Driver wins the Southern 500? So um, I, I think there's, there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of depth to this movie, way more than just comedy. But uh, yeah, there's, there's, I think of the scene where, uh, you know, that, that cop car lands on the moving bed of the truck. Right. That's a nice, and, that's a nice stunt, by the way. Yeah. They did that. And then, you know, of course, the, the big one was jumping the bridge, the Trans Am jumping the bridge. Jackie Gleason's character driving the the cop car that has the, the top completely shaven off and the door's missing and by the time he gets to Atlanta things barely running. This is evidence. Yeah. That was is... a good slow motion cut though. Like when the car actually you gets took the words out of my there, mouth, Russell. It looks so good. The slow motion was also really well done for the jump because it's not that slow. It's not it's not six million dollar man slow. It's it's just slow enough to see the the wonderful jump. Uh, and then we follow that up with the two cars that can't make it. Uh, they do another jump onto the football field. Uh, the the car stunts. I think I'm becoming because uh, I am not a car guy. I'm not uh, either. Nor am I a racing guy. But I I believe every car chase scene I see becomes something more that like I'm excited to see. And so when Smoking the Bandit comes across our desk, I go, Ooh, I think I know a little bit of what we're going to be in for. And uh, to be excited, gosh, there's no. There's no greater feeling than seeing that standstill shot of those mailboxes right before they get destroyed by that Trans Am. Or talking about uh, the, we have kind of a solo scene with a snowman in the bar or some type of bar uh, where Fred uh, supposedly bites that one gang. He gets beaten up pretty good. I mean, he's not some type of superhero with like combat prowess. He kind of gets beaten up. So what does he do? He just pays for his gas, gets up in his rig, and just demolishes all those motorcycles. 
you know, they really got what was coming to him. And seeing even stuff like that is just fun. It, it just feels like, oh, yeah, uh, this is this is what I'm all about. I think, again, this comes from Needham's desire, not only as a stuntman, but also he's a he's an intro. You know, he's a driver. He, he, he was uh, involved with the World Speed Land Speed Record Project for the Budweiser rocket you know, and which was driven by Stan Bar- Barrett and the team failed to set the record, actually. But uh, their claims to have broken the sound barrier uh, were disputed and stuff. But this guy was a speed junkie. And then also Burt Reynolds owned, co-owned a Mach 1 racing team as well. And so this is, this is a, these guys have a need for speed, if you will. These guys love going fast, and that's captured in the images and what you're talking about in the movie. I like how the stunts that you're talking about, like when they jump the bridge, they let it run long enough that you can see the car, like <laughs> the car's taking a lot of damage on that. You can see it kind of bottom out and then bounce back up, and there's a realness to it. And shockingly they they i've seen some reports say four but in the interviews with hal needham he says they got three trans ams and to do this with and they absolutely wrecked them and were taking them apart just to have one car barely going across the movie at the end and the bonnevilles that they got to do uh the sheriff's uh cars with as well they only had two pontiac bonnevilles to beat those Wow. To shreds as well again this is not a big budget they made so much money they could have but return on investments massive for this movie and so uh it, it, it's funny that again you have to do all this for real one of the things that when you do the fast and furious you can computerize it you can swing the cameras around you can have any angle you want and so i i could see somebody maybe coming back to this and saying like i don't know it doesn't capture me was it exciting and it has to lean more on its comedy maybe the action's not there as much but I don't know. I think seeing them do all this stuff for real is pretty cool, too. So maybe I have a higher appreciation for doing it real, but I don't know. I think those stunts hold up to me to this day. Again, I think there's a there's an element of danger, and maybe it's because I've sort of transitioned my career into insurance. I think about how there's <laughs> there's there's not a, an airbag in the car. The seatbelts, I don't think they're wearing them at any point in time. You know, the roads don't have those rumble strips on the, on the interstate. Um, they're on, on either side. The guardrails are very, very minimal. There's not the cables. So there's, there's you know, the 70, and of course, everyone's smoking all the time too. So the element of safety is, uh, it's not, not anywhere to be seen in this movie. And you mentioned the stunt where they drove out onto the, you know, athletics field there, Dustin, they hit a ramp and they actually did drive out onto a field. And I, I saw an interview with Burt Reynolds where he and, he and Hal had, had planned out for things to work a certain way, but the grass was slipperier than they thought it would be, and they had a harder time controlling the car. The dugout was like where they crashed into was a closer call than they thought. And more importantly, they were closer to the kids than they thought it was, and they got oh, done wow. with the shot. They captured everything they needed to, and they were really nervous, and they were like breathing like, yeah. like, and the kids were like, "This is fun. Let's do this again." And they're like, "We're like, no." <laughs> right, and, I think we got so, it. But then some of the mothers had come up to, you know, Bert's like, I, I, that, those cars were close. I didn't realize they were going to be so close. And he's like, well, yeah, we're, we're pretty good at this. We know what we're doing. We like to make <laughs> it look realistic. And like in his, in his head, you know, it's nice to know that Bert Reynolds isn't actually this confident all the time. Right. He was saying, he was just like, whoo, that was close. I, I saw loved that, that I saw. skidding stop in front of Carrie uh, when she's in the road. That's really good. That was the one that made me realize, oh, this isn't just a uh, uh, reckless or like huge budget. Like they must really know what they're doing, at least most of the time. 
uh, because that looked incredible how close they got to her, um, whether it was a stand in or her or not. There, there are certain things that like the trucks can't do too much. But, you know, some of yeah. the shots of like the oncoming traffic, what, what is what does Cletus say? Like, hey, you got to make your own lane. Uh, and we get some awesome wherever they scoped out these highways with like a little dipped out sort of frontage road on the side that they could just, you know, burn rubber down. And you see all the dust clouds come up or these country highways that they can turn off of. We have one of the cop cars going into a lake where, you know, you just got somebody fishing there. Uh, it's really, really like a, a treat to see these things. I think I'm I'm more interested in this story in total and especially because of its simplicity there's no there's no conflict between cletus and bandit whatsoever not really no. uh there there's a hint of it early on when there when he says hey when i say 21 it means 19 and when i say six it means three and when i say two it means one it's like all right good plan cletus and then immediately bandit says how about we sc- scratch that and do it my way and there's like a, there's a slight tinge of like oh is, does does he not want to be second banana but that's literally all you get and because of that you can focus on the friendship and i've said it before i'll say it again a, a friendship is a, a true friendship in a movie is harder to pull off than a romance now we get both in this movie so th- that gives it it deserves its credit for that ben you were about to say something i don't remember what it was, <laughs> that, was that was good i was thinking about some friendships and other movies too that was great the yeah. once upon a time in hollywood had a good one that friendship is 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 a good one i like watching him at the house with his wife uh snowman's wife <laughs> yeah, i was thinking that you know yeah he he uh wayne wayne yeah she had those curlers in she, like she... <laughs> yeah so there wasn't any skirmish or, or disdain for each other but the snowman's wife certainly did not like bandit i guess because he got locked away previously or yeah. Or something. Yeah. There's, there's some he's likely to get it. He's likely to get her husband in trouble. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 You know, before before we leave the stunts in total, do we have Mad Max without smoking the bandit? Mad Max the original came out two years later. And Fury Road, mm. speaking of practical cars, you know every single vehicle in, in Fury Road can be driven. None of that is like CGI. That those are all drivable cars. So you know, you mentioned the the Bonnevilles and the Trans Am and you think about the big rigs and all this, like yeah, four point three million dollar budget makes what did you say one and a half? Like, like it, it was it was so so awesome to to use what they had in store. But I, I feel as if like this is one of the things that will make sure it ensures that it will always hold up is the the use of that kind of thing. And then we can't forget Ben said it earlier. Soundtrack unbelievable, really feels fun. I I made a couple of notes. Uh, you know, you have. <laughs> The first time Buford T. Justice shows up and you've got those heavy horns playing, you know, bomb, bomb, bomb. <laughs> and, and, and then you've got an, an excellent like chase scene with some kind of fast, brassy pops with a banjo behind it. And then with the fiddles behind it. And then we end the movie with, now I would say Charlie Daniels did it the best ever, but you end it with a rendition of the Orange Blossom special. It is fantastic. And Really, really special soundtrack alongside these big, bright, wonderful, often violent scenes. You know, it's amazing what music can do to set the tone for your experience of the same thing. That's really important to get right. Universal nearly got it wrong. Universal thought 
that the country score and soundtrack wasn't any good, didn't have any mass appeal. So they wanted to change it and they replaced it with an orchestral score. Oh, man. Hal Needham, Hal Needham, who first time director didn't have a lot to stand on, hated it and uh, fought and told him to cut it and put the original score back in. And I got to say, Ben, can you can you picture this with an orchestral score? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Wow. I didn't know that. That's amazing. All of a sudden, we've got James Bond music in the back. The more and more we do this podcast, you only hear about the bad ideas that the studio usually makes you do rather than the good ones that they save you from. Obviously, the director probably takes credit when it <laughs> when it goes well. But I do hear a lot of really bad ones where it's just like the studio's like, got this idea. What about? <laughs> and it's always the worst idea ever. Yeah. And that that seems to be right up there with this one so well we are lucky to frequently do i'm not going to call them passion projects per se but we uh we do movies where somebody says give me this person or get me that person or i only want it this way or uh, the studio told me that we had to do orchestral and i'm going to say no we got to stick with this sound and so we frequently do hear about the movies that we cover on the show like when someone is being very particular about what they want and what's great about that is that we get to see some great movies. But for every one of those, there's got to be 10 where somebody was being a little bit too reserved or they put up some walls or boundaries and say like, no, you can't change what I want to do. And it ends up being a movie that we've either never heard of or never will cover because it just wasn't successful. It's amazing how if you have funny people and charismatic people, how little you need to do, just let the cameras roll. And I got to say how Needham captures their personality in the movie really well. I mean, Ben, this doesn't even feel like a first time director, does it? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, uh, there's so many things that happen. Of course, he's got tremendous experience with stunts, but so many things that happen throughout this movie make you think they've done this plenty of times before. And I think, you know, obviously the, the plot was, was very thin, but there's so many things that happen, both racing the clock, both falling in love, both being with your buddy and, 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 you know, making it about getting a, beer run accomplished i think there's a lot of levels to this movie that make it successful and probably it's, along with the music is why we love it i think the the real focus could be on some pratfalls that he avoided or some like issues that he avoided uh, you're right that it doesn't seem like a first director like a first time director and there were some things that could have been overly done and so he, like a careful stuntman, was not pushing it uh, with like treading into territory he did not understand. And so there are certain things that I'll bring up in our next segment, certain things that I feel as if, oh, this could have so easily been poorly done, but instead the restraint from the director's side allowed us to have something simpler. Think about, think about in the 21st century, with the presence of a filmmaker like M. Night Shyamalan. With that presence, anybody that would attempt to make a thriller or a mystery might think, I need a Shyamalan-style twist. And how many times is that going to lead to something poorly done? And in this case, our director did not need to like achieve something wild in, in terms of like a choice. He just did something basic. We've said it all. It's underwritten, thin plot, but it's still so enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Ben, what does the setting do for this movie? What is it, the secret sauce of 
the South. Yeah, I think Dustin talk, touched on it earlier. The, the, the South, you know, has that reputation of, of being a rebel, you know, not necessarily fully following the law. You know, they, they, they try to get whatever advantage they can. You know, the South is a wonderfully charming place. There's so many great places, great people. But um, in I think in a lot of people's minds, they're a little bit of an underdog. And so anytime you could you could get an advantage at some sort of way. Yeah, get one over. Yeah, get one over on on uh, anyone or anything. I think they're looking to take advantage of that. But uh, to me, uh, it's just absolutely beautiful. I love the South. You know, I, I love West Virginia. It's right on the edge of that where I live, and so we're the northernmost southern state and the southernmost northern state. Many people mm-hmm. say, but uh, the scenery is amazing, especially some of those very rural scenes and and um, middle of nowhere interstate scenes. Just just makes you want to be there racing with them. A lot of it was filmed in Alabama. Uh, though they did go to Georgia as well. Uh, they said they were in uh, other states like Mississippi and they were still in Alabama. Forgivable. I don't I don't notice it. It's funny. They had to reshoot a couple of things. Some of this, I'm about to California, you're Georgia, Ben, but uh, some of this actually is done in California. I can't tell, though. So, I mean, things are moving very quickly and that that is very forgiving. The highways in the south, all the trees, all the green. I'm in Texas. It's mostly brown here. I got cedar and I got live oaks, and that's it. Trees aren't higher than fifteen feet. Seeing that in in movies is is all it's really nostalgic. So it it whoever it was that said like must watch if you're from the south, they weren't lying. There there were certain things that I was kind of joking about, like Texarkana. I've been to, uh, or I guess I should say I've been through. You could not have filmed this on location in Arkansas because no vehicle can last on those roads. They are terrible. <laughs> And Arkansas smells bad. <laughs> Sorry, Arkansas listeners. <laughs> well, I guess Texarkana is the the geographical uh, spot for this because it's the one of the easternmost points of Texas along the highway. I don't, I don't know much about it. I've never been there. But. It, it's along that northern highway that kind of touches uh, where Arkansas is. If you were going to like hit 40 through Tennessee, through Memphis, through Arkansas, and then like go towards Dallas. Uh, yeah, th- th- it does make sense for why... That would be the easternmost place that they could pick up Coors beer. Well, I felt like the name of the town was a perfect selection too, because it tells you exactly where it is based on the <laughs> That's true. Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana. You know, right? Yeah. So. The the one that the one that drives me nuts is West Memphis, Arkansas. There's a separate city. <laughs> there's Memphis, Tennessee, and then there's West Memphis, Arkansas. Now, I'm not a car guy, as I mentioned earlier, but I would think if anybody is a car enthusiast. There's so much driving in this movie. That has to be a big appeal for this movie. Ben, what is it about the Trans Am? I mean, what a cool car. It's got the T-top roof, uh, open air the entire time. It's it's a big engine car, very light frame, uh, can stop on relatively a dime and has all the, the speed and maneuverability that you'd want. Um, and I think that, you know, the the Phoenix painted on the, on the hood, it just rad. adds to it. I mean, what a rad car. When they pulled the car, when when uh, Bandit pulled the car out of the back of the truck, and and Snowman sees it for the first time, I think I I feel that way every time I I see the car. I'd love it's to a, have one. It's a great introduction to the car. It definitely gets a big moment. It's it's a good car commercial. Burt uh, Reynolds was again promised a free Trans Am. He said, "If this movie becomes a big hit and we sell a lot of Trans Ams, I'll get you one yourself." And obviously, this movie was more than a big hit. It was it was a smash hit, and Trans Ams were flying off the shelf the next year, and even more so two years off. So this was 
obviously the car was catapulted by this movie. And when it became a hit, Reynolds kind of expected the executives to come through with their promise, not to be pretentious or whatever, but he kind of called them up one day and said, uh, what about the, what about my <laughs> Trans Am? And unfortunately, the, the executive who had made him that uh, handshake promise retired, and the new executive said, nah. <laughs> I would have done it. I felt like Burt Reynolds should have deserved that Trans Am. I he did. The car. I mean, he put him on the map, he made everybody want one, and to me, that's one of the most quintessential cars of the 1970s, right alongside Orange Challenger. <laughs> Russell, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of Norm McDonald's Burt Reynolds, like walking up, <laughs> chewing his gum with his big foam hat on like in the executive's office. Like, yeah, yeah, you're about to, uh, <laughs> you're about to get on Burt Reynolds' bad side, huh? So where's my, tra- where's my Trans Am? <laughs> yeah, you're about to draw out the full ire of Burt Reynolds, are you? <laughs> you have it in contract? No. No, just give me one. Thanks. <laughs> Burt Reynolds asked for something. Burt Reynolds gets it. <laughs> Boy, it is an iconic car in all of film history because of this now. So, well, I'm glad they chose that because I feel like the Trans Am is in a uh, in, in that car becomes synonymous with I feel like a, a Southern working class. Oh, crew. So I think that's, that's a an good excellent choice. point. All right, what do you guys say? We hand out some superlatives. Ten four. All right, Ben, who's your MVP? Well, it has to be Burt Reynolds. I mean, he makes. He makes the movie. Uh, I think he automatically earns the MVP for me when early on in the movie, he's out running a cop and he breaks the fourth wall and just smiles right at the camera, right (laughs) at the audience. You just know that this is your friend. This is going to be a fun movie. You know, you're going to want to chase him, uh, be along for the ride. So to me, this is no doubt MVP. Although Jackie Gleason, I think is right behind. All right. It's funny. You mentioned breaking the fourth wall. Somebody, somebody came up to Hal Needham who was a first time director and said, Woo. That's a that's a gutsy move, breaking the fourth wall, and he he just kind of went like, "Yeah, I liked it." And turned to somebody else and goes, "What's he mean breaking the fourth wall?" Oh wow! <laughs> he just thought it was nice. So it's, it's one second. It's just one second. Doesn't say anything. Just a look. But man, the look is meaningful. He didn't even think anything by it. But it was. Uh, it's funny how that. <laughs> <laughs> Dustin, how about you? I went with Hal Needham. I. I agree with the ensemble cast and the performances there's a lot of gravitas and that's great uh but in total especially having seen it as a boy and not really getting it that to come back and say this is put together in this sort of special way that though it might seem thin if you view it with a critical lens is still just incredibly enjoyable and i know sometimes we talk about rewatchability this movie has it uh, so i'm giving it for the total package here i'll need them Ben's right. I'm going to go with Burt Reynolds as well. And it's his charisma that carries this movie. But not only that, he's the guy who made the movie something that was big, something that was marketable, something that could get more funds. And he brought the right people in. And, you know, he was a stunt man himself. He was, you know, he was vying to try and do a lot of the stunt driving parts himself. And Hal was a stunt man and the actual stunt man who was in the movie, you know, and he were all going back out machoing each other. It actually sounds like it would have been a very fun set to be part of there. So. Um, it's, uh, it's, I guess out of Burt Reynolds' desire to work with people that he likes on a project that he likes, it's out of his passion that this comes true. And I do have to admit, I have given a hard look to Jackie Gleason as well. Ben was right. I mean, I'll, Jackie Gleason gets a lot of the most memorable parts for me and was very funny. This movie's called Smokey and the Bandit. This movie doesn't work without Smokey because he's so funny. He's just so, so funny. Smokey Bear. All right. 
Dustin, what's your best supporting? Jerry Reed as Cletus Snowman. Uh, he seems so natural in that spot. Uh, there's Aside from getting beat up in the bar, in which he gets his just desserts, he gets his revenge right away, uh, not too much bad happens to him, and that's nice and comforting to know that like it, things are all right. He's uh, Him and Fred are just doing fine, um, aside from Fred eating up all the leather inside of the interior because he's hungry. Uh, but yeah, he's he's just going along, and I, and I think that's that's really good. Uh, had the movie been uh, like more complex, then perhaps there might have been some uh, conflict between him and Bandit, or also between him and Waynette, or something else. Maybe he says like, "Hey, why do you have this woman with us? You're compromising the mission." We were never really in fear that the mission's not going to be successful. I don't think so. Even in the last twenty minutes with the air support. Uh, Jerry Reed has kind of a calming effect, and it might be because at the time people would have really known him as like, oh yeah, a big time country singer, um, performer. But I, I think uh, even if you don't have that context, he's still very comforting. Does he get enough screen time, Ben? I, I think it's just yeah. I think he's a big enough star that he didn't need a whole lot. Every time he's there, he commands a lot of respect, and he would he would have been my second choice for best supporting actor. But uh, yeah, I, I love Jerry Reed. My best supporting actor is going to be. Mike Henry, Mr. Tarzan himself as Junior. He is so <laughs> funny. He doesn't say a lot, but his physical responses, his blank expressions, like <laughs> he conveys this dim-witted, lovable guy. And again, because he's getting beat around and jerked around by his dad, talked over, interrupted, and disrespected, and at the, you know, left at the altar, etc. Everything bad's happening to him, and no matter how mean his dad is, we still like we still like Junior. And <laughs> everything that Jackie Gleason does doesn't work if he didn't have somebody else in the car with him. And he said, "I need somebody in the car with me for this to work." And thankfully, everybody listened to him because without Junior in there, this movie doesn't work either. It's a small little piece, but it makes it all come together so well. Ben, hidden gem. Well, for me, I had to think a lot about this because I've, you know, watched this movie so many times it's hard to pick out a hidden gem. But I think uh, we don't actually see anyone drinking any Coors beer in this movie. So to me, you know, the the, <laughs> really? the nostalgia, you know, the the desire for that brand, you know, the the plot is to get Coors beer. But at, at no point in the movie do you actually see someone cracking open a can and enjoying it and showing you how how much they enjoy it it's no, it's more no. about the mystique of the the Coors Light so that was I don't know that that's a really hidden gem but that's something that I, I didn't really think about or appreciate until certainly the yeah. right. they, they, certainly they is, broke yeah. more bottles with a forklift than they did yeah, drink that's true you're right they drive they any forking thing they, they could have they could have used a shot at the end of everybody having you have Coors Light <laughs> You know, like, I'm shocked. Like, this movie is like, seems like it's dripping with product placement in the beginning. But based on what you just said, I've, I'm sitting there going like, wow, whoever whoever made this movie didn't monetize their Coors Light leverage nearly enough, you know? Maybe this has yeah. got to be Coors the Banquet Beer. I think this is before light beer was even a thing. So interesting. No, that's a great point. Dustin, Hidden Gem. I spoiled it earlier by saying the Orange Blossom special uh, fiddle song, which is known for being technically difficult, is uh, is a great ending piece. Uh, but because I brought it up earlier, of course, I always bring a backup. My backup is I am forever going to be on the hunt for a Diablo sandwich yeah. to have with a Dr. Pepper. Because 
the way he houses that thing. I can't tell. Is it chicken? I don't even know. But it's covered in some type of must, what must be a spicy sauce. That's my <laughs> hidden gem. Still hidden to me. I hope to find it someday. It looked like spicy bologna to me. I don't know about you. Spicy bologna. Yeah, I guess it was kind of flimsy, but I also yeah. think that just in his paws, it was like falling apart. I love it. What he great... did put it together real quick. I'm going to go with Fred the dog. It's is a very lovable dog. And again, it helps to have somebody in the seat next to you. So That's snowman's true. not going to be as fun without his love of his dog. It's something in, endears you to him. You know, he's thinking about him. He wants to get a meal for him. And uh, he goes in the water to catch him and stuff like that. Somehow this dog, this is not a stunt dog, by the way. This is not a trained acting dog. They got this dog uh, in Atlanta. They put an ad up in the paper that said uh, they didn't have a dog. So uh, Burt Reynolds is going to pick the dog out of a contest. And they had way more dogs show up than they ever thought possible. <laughs> they had hundreds and hundreds of dogs. There wasn't a dog left in the pound. People had picked dogs up left and right wanting to get Burt Reynolds, the real Burt Reynolds, to shake their hand and say, I want your dog in my movie. And uh, it worked. He just put his hand over a basset hound and said, dog. This one. <laughs> Recast. This is going to be hard for you, Ben, because I can tell you love this movie. I would probably, I think Big Enos left a lot to be desired. Sure, he had a lot of money, but you don't know where it came from. You don't know why he has it. He's got a great little sidekick or son. Uh, but I, I thought, you know, what if it was, uh, thinking back to the, the James Bond era or, or theme, what if we had like an, uh, an evil, wealthy British financier behind this who just had a love? <laughs> For yeah. the banquet beer. Um, I don't know exactly who. I was thinking maybe Anthony Hopkins at that time would have been fun just to wow. have another um, you know, big name in the in the movie. But the, again, how do you do a, a little Enos? For, how do you make Anthony Hopkins huge and how do you have a little Enos around him? So Dustin, how about you? I did not look up the name of the actresses, uh, but there is uh, the the woman working at the trust the truck stop who provides the Diablo sandwich and the couple of cheeseburgers who Sheriff comments on her rear end uh, as she's walking away. There's a, there's some small bit female parts that are, they're all, they're fun, but I don't know how much, because the the cast is so big and everybody is on screen for such a great amount of time. But I think if you could combine some of those smaller female parts and give the person who's at the truck stop, who's interacting with both Smokey and the bandit here, uh, if you could put like Betty White in there, someone who stands out as a larger part of the cast for that comedic scene, a cameo. Okay. And I'm going to do a similar kind of line of thinking. I'm coming after Susie Ewing. She, there's nothing wrong with her. She's codenamed Hot Pants. Uh, she's the owner of the Choke and Puke who goes to help. There's nothing wrong with Susie Ewing at all. But what if it was Dolly Parton? <laughs> I almost went there. <laughs> yeah. I almost went to the part and well. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, that would, it's already mandatory viewing for the South. Be, why not just push it over the edge by putting their queen in there? So yeah. best shot, Ben. Well, I, yeah, I touched on this a little bit earlier. I, I think to me it was the, uh, the scene where the, the police cars are chasing the bandit and all of a sudden one of them uh, loses control and ends up on the back of a moving uh, big rig that has this pulling an empty, uh, car hauler thing so that you know i guess they did that in two takes they missed it the first time and the second time they landed right on there the uh, you know a little bit sideways but it was enough and he said i'm gonna need you to pull off the next stop and you hear two honks of the big horn so uh, i think that to me was just unbelievable to to actually pull that off with a real car and a real human being and think about you know 
how how movies are so CGI today. That's that's a real feat in and of itself. And I picked that over a lot of different things. You know, the, obviously the the truck races in the beginning. There's the the big finish. Um, there's some some beautiful scenes throughout. But to me, the the, the authenticity of 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 that stunt to me was just still unbelievable. Hmm, it's a great choice, Dustin. Best shot for you. It's a brief shot, but it is after they go on their little walk, and he says he only takes his hat off for one thing. She kind of asks permission. He says he wants to. Snowman hollers back at him over the CB, and you get the shot of the hat just wiggling ever so slightly on the antenna. And I thought that was kind of all you needed. Um, just a couple of sort of classic campy 70s kisses and just the movement of that hat. Hmm. I got a good one here. After Bandit and, and Frog get away across the stream, and the other car cop car stalls out in the water, and they're pulling it out, then... The very beat up Bonneville drives up with Sheriff T, uh, Sheriff Buford T. Justice climbing out of the car, and Junior's holding on his hat. And Junior continues to get out of the car and continues to hold his hat as he's walking towards them. And the camera comes from the car, panning them both both together. With again, my best supporting actor of Mike Henry walking there, holding his hat, moving along the line. And his dad looks over to him, stop holding my hat. Like it's uh, <laughs> the camera just emphasizes the movement of how far from the car they've come and it again plays up how far there's no need to hold this hat up and it's it's already funny before he says it and watching him react is the payoff that you needed to have that take your laugh that was already starting to come from from five to ten so i love it when a camera shot can make something funnier than how you capture the moment and that's one of those things i like um, nobody picked this one so it's worth mentioning there's a scene where the sheriff's truck is banged into snowman's the front of snowman's truck as he's passing him and it wasn't supposed to happen quite like oh, that really? yeah it was just supposed to so he's going up for it and hit it and then it kind of t-bones the car like it kind of hits the car and <laughs> they the stunt driver said uh when he got out of there pretty shaken up he's like the grill on that truck's a lot bigger at 50 miles per hour <laughs> than than it is here so uh they kept the shot. It looks great in the movie. It is actually a good shot anyway, but the, the added action that wasn't necessarily scripted. Hal Needham said most of everything that they had on this went mostly as scripted. Again, they got a little close to some kids, which <laughs> uh, on the baseball field. Uh, sorry, Major on, on the, yeah. So, but this was this is the one thing he said that wasn't supposed to happen. And he said in the end, it kind of looked better. In the end, he's like, glad nobody got hurt. Best scene, Ben. Well, this again, it was really hard to pick, but to me, it's the, it's the finale. I mean, they, they finally make it, they deliver the beer. You don't know, like, again, you don't see how they receive it. You don't see how they open it, but they, they made it, they got there on time and, uh, they got their money, but instead they chose uh, double or nothing, go get some clam chowder in Boston rather than collecting them because they had so much fun on the chase. So to me, the finality of it was great. They knowing that they made it was awesome. And, just just made you want more. I'm ready to watch the second one. Dustin, what's your favorite scene? It's when they meet at the choke and puke. Ah, and, yep, this is and, mine too. Go yeah, ahead. Okay. So Take I, it. I won't say too much but because uh, I, I want to hear what you have to say. But yeah, yes, it's, it's very much needed. There are some instances in movies where our protagonist and the antagonist don't even meet. So, yeah, so when they meet, uh, it also takes me back to last year where we're talking about um, the shop around the corner. When 
the meeting for the two characters is like rare. And as it is here, it's really electric. And the fact that one knew while the other didn't really just kind of makes you edge up on your seat a little bit. So I, I thought that was wonderful. Plus the comedy of that scene was, was very good. It was very charming. It was. I picked this one as well, Dustin, because a lot of the reasons that you said, but Jackie Gleason, another suggestion he made said, we should do this scene. And they said, sure. So they, this wasn't written into the script. And he thought it would be funny to go in and not realize that he was coming down into a, a place in a hurry, you know, with yeah. with sitting right next to the bandit himself. And Burt Reynolds lays it on thick by here. Let me get the let me get the check. You're a hardworking man, lol, and stuff like that. I mean, you know, uh, you yeah, know. for sure. And that's really that's really generous. I mean, a, a Diablo sandwich and a Dr Pepper that's probably going to run you seventy five cents. <laughs> so um, I also love even just from the moment he comes in the door, he's like. What do you want to eat, Junior? He's like, and he, I don't remember what he says, but he's like, it's too slow. With hush puppies. <laughs> we don't have time for that. Yeah, so. Well, I also thought it was funny that he thought he caught the bandit earlier in the movie, but it ended up being the sheriff in a roadside brothel of a different That's right. county. So. That was good. Yep. That was very good. Best wardrobe or makeup moment? Very Southern, very 70s, Ben. What's it going to be? Oh, well, everyone knows that Burt Reynolds' mustache was the star of the show. It's Burt Reynolds and then his mustache. But to me, the very uh, very hard to see thing, unless you have an HDTV, was Buford T. Justice, the sheriff, had a tiny little pencil-thin mustache there. And I don't know where that came from or what the the idea was behind it, but it seemed to me very New York Italian or something like that. But how in the world, even, even the craftsmanship of it, how in the world do you get a mustache that thin? I can't mm-hmm. imagine trying to cut one for me, but I thought that was so cool. <laughs> wow, yeah. It's a good one. Dustin, how about you? Uh, sometimes the clothes are simple. Uh, Han Solo's clothes are simple. And so are the bandits. Uh, the just Very simple clothes, red shirt, cowboy hat. If you were to dress someone up as the bandit, I'd say 90% of the South would know what you're doing. Now, the, the mustache would help, but it's, just, it's, it's not unique, really. But uh, I think if, if you put that ensemble together, Everyone knows what you're doing. So that's it's actually just Burt Reynolds' whole thing. It's so fitting, too, the bright red shirt. He's trying to draw the heat off of this car. It's kind of like the right. red. The, the red, Exactly. The, that's kind of like the red that you wave in front of the bull to take all the attention away. So it, it's very fitting that it, he wears something as flashy. And, you know, it's very simple. But contrast that to like what Snowman's wearing, you know? Super 70s life preserver vest kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Orange bell bottoms. I mean, real bell bottoms. <laughs> yes, they are belled all the way. So, um, good point. I mean, and you can see that. Look at, look at, look here. Don't now you can see me over here and now you don't. So that's, that's conveyed in the wardrobe too. So my, my choice is going to be I like bell bottoms. I do. And Sally Field rocks the bell bottoms in a more serious way. Like I, I like her bell bottoms. So uh, there was a mid '90s or late '90s kind of revival of some '70s things. It may have come from that '70s show coming back. So some of the ladies when we were younger would wear bell bottoms, and I liked it. So seeing Sally Field wear the bell bottoms made me uh, made me happy as well, and it made Snowman happy too. He said uh, she got a cute butt. So. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to mention it until you did, but the, uh, you know, the certain time periods, certain things are risque, certain things are not. They didn't push it with the sex appeal or the fan mm-hmm. service, but uh, I believe there is a, like, a cut back to 
the passenger seat and it's when she's kind of leaning back in the car and the camera is just on her derriere and he's kind of peeking over like that doesn't it's that this is another instance where they didn't do too much where where we're looking at hal being like a little restraint here uh while she's changing out of her dress they could have done something more more skin or something and they Mm -hmm. didn't that's great whenever you can see a little restraint well done yep and uh suitable for tv yes you would say mm-hmm. so change one thing ben if you had to change one thing what would it be yeah this was hard again too i i don't know that I, there's anything i would change the only thing i wish is there was more you know i wish i yeah. wish uh maybe there was more to the plot i don't know maybe there was another there we get two versions of the eastbound and down there's a westbound and down first right. song when they when they first start out but uh I don't know. I, I, there's not a whole lot I would recommend changing, and uh, and I really couldn't come up with a good answer for this one. So I'm just, I, I love the movie so much that I'm I'm happy with where it is. I like it. Well, Dustin, how about you? Change one thing. I would explain the Enos's desire for the Coors beer a little bit more, <laughs> or have them in some way. They're not evil. We know that. They're just, there's a challenge. They're eccentric rich guys. But, you know, with the way that they're presented, you might think, oh, these guys, they're, if they're rich, they're probably up, up to something. And they're not. The only challenge really there is that they'll bet with each other as to whether or not they're successful or not. Um, mm-hmm. The movie is so incredibly simple that it has room to add a tad more complexity. I'd love to see if there was some connection with local law enforcement as to like, all right, they made it all the way back here, and then the trap is set. They're going to capture them, and they get their beer. They don't have to pay. Does this make sense? Where they're, they're working together with the, the law to both get what they want, which is the shipment of Coors beer. The law gets uh, bootleggers. Like That could be, if I were the mastermind here, <laughs> that's probably what I would have done. The movie's too simple and fun for that. And that's okay. I might have overwritten it myself because as soon as you said, what would you do? My head started turning. My head instantly went to pay three bandits at the same time and said, whoever gets back with the cooler beer first. That's great. Gets the $80,000 and you can have some other side stories and some other calamities, sabotage each other, et cetera, yep. you know, going on. And it turns into a bit of like rat race or something like uh-huh. that. So. But, the, but I do want to say that is what I would do if I had to. It's not something I... Think must be done <laughs> well I, I think we can write another movie because if we've proven with super bad and this now we could just going for beer is a good idea for a movie so screenwriters pay us money and we'll write this for you so my my change one thing is going to be i want to see jerry reed play some music oh smart like i want to see him pick up the guitar it could just be on his porch at home um uh, or it could be maybe a truck stop maybe that uh maybe uh Maybe the guys who are at the, the motorcycle bar or whatever say, oh, this guy plays a really mean guitar. And he's like, nah, I don't know. I'm going to hurry. He's like, just one song. And then have him rock the house. So, Well, in Smoking Bandit 2, you do get country music singer Don Williams doing exactly that. He plays in one of the, the biker bars. It's maybe the Blues Brothers, which I love, might be channeled through this movie, by the way. I love the Blues Brothers, and I don't know that you get that without this, by the way, Dustin. Exactly. So. Dude, I was thinking that. What kind of music you play in this place? Oh, we got both kinds, country and Western. <laughs> so so uh, that's my change one thing. Best quote, Ben. Well, for me, it's not just a quote. It's the entire sub language of the CB radio. 
Um, there's there's so many great quotes that come from that. You know, stop and put some uh, stop the choke and puke, put some groceries down my neck. Uh, you got to stop and get some go go juice, things like that. And yeah, uh, you got peanut butter in your ears. You know, things like that. <laughs> there's a bear in there. Uh, smoky all over the place. So that's you know the the whole trucker language is my favorite. Thing. That's what makes the movie. All right, Dustin, how about you? Mine's a little long, so bear with me here. Now you boys just stay here and watch the car. There might be some vandals around that might want to steal something. So you boys just stay here and keep your hands on the car until one of my associates arrive. And don't go home. And don't go to eat. Don't touch yourself. That wouldn't look nice on my highway. You can think about it, but don't do it. That's weird. (laughs) That is a weird scene. It, it, is. Does, it is right after his introduction, but it is weird. I thought that like posse was kind of involved, but like he's just, it shows a little bit of his comedic menacing. And it, but even still, it's just like, wow, that kind of came across strange, but it still, it just adds to how much you enjoy that character. Well, we've said a lot of my favorites ones through this one, but I, one that made my jaw drop is like, there's no you came from my loins. <laughs> right. As soon as I get home, first thing I'm going to do is punch your mama in the mouth. <laughs> and uh, that is so good. I did really like the fact that, um, you know, that uh, you're a sheriff that's not germane to the situation. Oh, the, Don, <laughs> the Don German's got nothing to do with it. <laughs> what do you he, say? He also says something very early on about how, like, Oh yeah, this bootlegging business. When I mean, they talk about this or that, and it's it's just straight communism. Like this guy is clueless, or what? I mean, he's it. Just it adds to his charm. I'm I'm very I'm very pleased with how they end up with this mishmash of just unlikable. That's just so fun to have on screen. Ben, we've come full circle on a five star scale, half star intervals. What would you rate Smokey and the Bandit from 1977? I give this movie a solid four stars. You know, I wanted to give it a five star because I love it so much, but uh, there's still, like I said, there's still a couple things that I believe could be stronger. We wish we had a stronger plot. I wish we tasted the Coors beer. I wish, <laughs> uh, I wish we got more out of the Enuses. And, uh, but, but again, there's, there's so much to it. This movie is, is a timeless classic for me, especially knowing and loving the South, knowing and loving Trans Ams and, and, and just the, the Burt Reynolds, uh, star that he Burt Reynolds star that he is. We just we just love him, Jackie Gleason. What a what a great cast. Uh what what great entertainment. To me it's it's the you know, now I'm talking myself up. I think I'm gonna give it four and a half. Four and a half stars for nice. this. Four and a half out of five. Uh I know there are plenty of movies that are that are better. There's 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 thousands of movies that are probably better than this, but I just love it. It's so fun. It's so easy to watch and I can watch it again and again. There's some movies you don't want to watch more than once or twice. I could watch this one a hundred times. I mm. love it when someone comes on the show and talks themselves up mid mid review. There like you go. That. <laughs> That's one of my things that just like, I don't know why I like that so much, but I'm just like, it's almost like one of those things like, but that's not all. Well, I felt bad. You know, I love this movie. At, you know, how do you give it a, a you know, 80%. So right. absolutely. Dustin, how about you? I'm going to mimic what he said with four stars, his original uh, star count. I think I would be excited to share this movie with people who had not seen it, especially being from the Deep South. Uh, I, I don't think for all it's a must watch. But if you like cars or you like driving movies or you like movies centered on the South, if you were to like 
create a subcategory of that alone, it's a five-star movie. For general audiences, I think it's four stars. I think that's fair, uh, but very enjoyable for me. Uh, we did, um, I'll mimic Ben again here. I think it could be deeper. I think there could be a little bit more, not just more laughs and hilarity and, and cuteness. There should be a bit of complexity to it, I think, but as is, four stars. I my ex my expectations were greatly exceeded. I knew about Smokey and Bandit as a title, and I never necessarily had the. This was not on my high to watch list necessarily, and I remember when we covered Star Wars, looking down, seeing like the number two movie on the box office that year, and going like, "Huh, really?" And I this has been an eye opening experience. So I've had a lot of fun with this. I'm going four stars as well, and I I think this is a lot better than i thought it was going to be i think it holds up better than i thought it was going to be i just expected a lot of cars and racing around maybe a kind of fast and furious movie with some little more yucks uh from the 70s but this is different it's its own thing and i really like it so i think to your point dustin it may not be the complexity but I don't want to undersell a movie for just flat out being fun and putting a smile on your face and enjoying it. I actually think that that increases its rewatchability. I think that I'm likely to watch this again. That's awesome. I, you know, I don't watch a whole lot of movies. I'll be honest. I, I watch Disney movies. I watch documentaries and that's about it. But I keep coming back to this one. And, <laughs> and it's really kind of satisfying to me having, I don't know, I'll, I'll say I introduced this movie to Russell. But, uh, you know, I don't know about you, Dustin, but I'm glad that I got you guys to watch it because I've loved it for at least for me for almost two decades. So this yeah, is great. This is great. I love I love hearing movie critics love the movie that I love. <laughs> By the way, Alfred Hitchcock is as great of a filmmaker and high end of a director as he has been. Uh, this was this was one of his most guilty pleasures that he really enjoyed watching oh, over kidding. and over again. His daughter said that they, they enjoyed watching Smokey and the Bandit a lot. So oh, that's awesome. even even the seriousness of Alfred Hitchcock loved this movie. So. I got to I got to add one more thing there too. Uh you ever see either in movies or in real life, you know, there's the idea of like your dad or your uncle or your grandpa where it's like, yeah, we're going to go out to have sushi. We're going to go have Korean barbecue. And like that character or your dad himself might like turn it. What are you going to have? You're going to have uncooked fish. And you realize that like some of the we'll say the avant-garde stuff of the film world is our high price, you know, downtown restaurant type of menu. Smoking the bandits, meat and potatoes. Sometimes <laughs> that's what you want. And I think that's, that's why I would come back to this. Absolutely. You know, some of the best meals that you can get uh, on this Southern themed episode is uh, a $6 barbecue. <laughs> I got to find me a Diablo sandwich. And a uh, little paper cardboard uh, container, you know? Well, I'll tell you what, Russell, because we're talking food, I mean, I'm getting hungry. Feeling like for next week, we ought to pick. We ought to pick a movie about the hunger. We're going to pick a movie from cannibalistic movies. Are you ready? I am ready. Yeah. It's wild. Okay. I got three options for you. Option one, The Hills Have Eyes, 1977. On the way to California, a family has the misfortune to have their car break down in an area closed to the public and inhabited by violent savages ready to attack. Option two, Ravenous from 1999. In a remote military outpost in the 19th century, Captain John Boyd and his regiment embark on a rescue mission which takes a dark turn when they are ambushed by a sadistic cannibal. And option three, wrong turn from 2003. Chris and a group of five friends are left stranded deep in the middle of the woods after their cars collide. As they venture deeper into the woods, they face an uncertain and blood-curdling fate. What are we going to do? 
Well, I'm not going to perpetuate the West Virginia, uh, <laughs> the, the bad West Virginia stereotypes with wrong turns. So I'm going to do Ravenous from 1999. Let's do something else. So. All right. I think I'm on that one. So looking forward to it. Ben, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate having you on. Hey, what an honor to be here. You guys are wonderful. I certainly enjoyed the podcast. And it's, it's great to share my favorite movie with guys who love and study movies all the time. What an honor. Look, I hope you guys invite me back sometime. This is great. Thank you. And thank you all the Lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So please subscribe, rate, review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. And give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email the show at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Dustin? I knew peace only when I killed. And when I heard her heart in that terrible rhythm, I knew again what peace could be.